Let's uh, pray together as we prepare to open the family book once again. Father, your word says that you always, in your son, you always lead us in triumphal procession. The warrior who has won the battle over sin, death, and the devil, taken us from the captivity that we experienced in the kingdom of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of light for your namesake. Lord God, we thank you that we are happy captives to Christ. And this morning, Lord, as we open your word, you, you have also said in that very same passage that we are an aroma of Christ to those who are being saved and those who are perishing at the self-same time. And Lord God, we pray that our time in your word would deepen us into the knowledge of Christ that we are to be spreading, the fragrance that we are to be spreading. Lord God, may this not just be an intellectual exercise, a cognitive sort of exercise, but would you work your word deep into our bones, make us people of the Bible, people of faith who go out into the world spreading the good news of the gospel. We pray these things. We pray your help as we listen now to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. There is uh, an intersection not far from our house on the West Island where the traffic lights are, at least by my reckoning, a little unusual. Uh, when the light is red at that intersection, there is, you can see, this is an actual picture, by the way, for the sermon illustration, I went out to the intersection and took a picture. So there's a little white ring you can see around that red light. It flashes repeatedly. And it's meant to grab your attention to make sure that you remain stopped. And as far as I can tell, they put that special light show there at that particular intersection because right at eye level, here's picture number two, right at eye level as you're stopped there, there is another set of lights at a separate intersection a little further down from where you are. And it's very, very easy for your eyes to focus on the light at that further intersection instead of the one that's right in front of you. It's easy to be focused on the wrong thing there. And you might proceed on the green light of the further intersection even though your actual light remains red. And of course, that would result in all sorts of trouble, wouldn't it? Well, the passage of scripture that we're looking at this morning has much to do with people who are focused on the wrong things. There are several individuals in this story in Scripture who are focused on the wrong things. And their wrong focus, their poor perception, causes problems, causes trouble. Now, part of the mandate for the first Israelite king named Saul was to deal with the Philistine problem. The Philistines had been Israel's greatest enemy during the time of the judges. And in 1 Samuel 13, we learned there that the Philistines during this period were more technologically advanced than the Israelites were. 
The Philistines were already, at this point, working with iron. They had swords and they had spears before the Israelites did. And so it would be no easy task then to win any kind of decisive victory over the technologically advanced Philistines. Well, one day, the Philistines were camped out in the western foothills of Judah. They were about they camped out there about 13 kilometers from the city, the Philistine city of Gath. The Philistine armies were gathered in that place. Why? They were gathered there for battle against Israel. And across the valley from the Philistines, across a dry riverbed, was the king of Israel, Saul, and his Israelite army. And so we pick up the story with that as background at 1 Samuel 17, verse 4. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion. And that word champion in the original Hebrew is quite literally man in between. Most likely this guy is an infantry type whose role was to go in between the camp of the Philistines and the camp of Israel in the hope of meeting up with the best Israelite opponent that Israel could send out. The idea was that the two opponents, these two individuals from each side, the soldiers, would meet up together and they would engage in hand-to-hand -hand combat to settle this thing. Instead of engaging in all the bloodshed that would result if you had entire armies waging war against one another, these two individuals would come and they would meet and they would settle the score. The Philistine man in between is named Goliath. Goliath hails from this Philistine city of Gath, only about 13 kilometers from where they're camped out, and his height was six cubits and a span. Now there's some debate about how we bring this measurement over into feet and inches. Essentially what it comes down to is that Goliath was either six foot nine inches or he was over nine feet tall. Now either way, he was head and shoulders above the average ancient Israelite ancient Near Eastern man, in fact, who at this particular time in history averaged about five feet to five and a half feet. But just notice here already, friends, as we're reading the scripture carefully, notice how the narrator of Samuel has taken our focus, has taken the reader's focus, and he's put it on the crazy height of this guy. In our mind's eye, we see Goliath there. He's towering over everybody. He's already a little bit intimidating, isn't he? Just look at how tall he is. And so who better to go against tall Goliath than the brave king of Israel, Saul? Saul, too, is very tall. 1 Samuel 10.23 had stressed that Saul was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. So why not send your tallest guy, who just happens also to be your king, against the tall champion 
of the Philistines. Doesn't this make perfect sense? Tall versus tall. Your king versus the best that the Philistines had to offer. Well, let's see what happens. I think most of us know the story, but let's follow through as if we don't know the story. Verse five, still talking to Goliath here. And the narrator wants us still focused, are you focused, on Goliath. He wants our eyes directed at Goliath. Look at Goliath. Behold Goliath. Focus on Goliath. He had a helmet of bronze on his head. Are you focused on Goliath? And he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. Now notice the sheer weight of Goliath's coat of mail, how it gets stressed in the narrative here. Doing the calculation, his coat weighed about 125 pounds. Verses six and seven, and he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his Shoulders, are you looking at Goliath? Can you picture him? The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron and his shield bearer went before him. Notice how the words bronze and iron are sprinkled so liberally into this description of Goliath. This is a guy who is decked out and covered and sheathed in metal, like a tank. And notice also there in verse seven that his spearhead weighed 600 shekels. Just the head of his spear weighed about 15 pounds. So here we have this metal encased, gigantic guy absolutely weighed down with his very intimidating weaponry. He is a fearsome sight to behold, no doubt about it. He is a fearsome presence. In the words of Bruce Waltke, and I like this, Goliath said, or, or Waltke says, Goliath is the Navy, Army, and Air Force combined into one great battle instrument. Now the description of Goliath's military getup, we need to understand as we're reading the whole Bible, it's the longest such description in the entire Old Testament. Why? Why does the, the narrator of Samuel labor like this to describe the dress of Goliath? Why does the narrator of Samuel want us to be focused on the fearsome lobster-like guy with all this armor essentially busting out of him at every corner? Why? I think we should pause here to reflect. On an initial reading of these verses, we're reading it for the first time, we might be tempted to say, oh, well, look at this guy. This guy clearly has the advantage. No matter who Israel is about to send, if they're gonna send anybody against this guy, he's got the advantage over everybody. Nobody on Israel's side is even going to come close to the terrifying battle readiness of this guy. 
it's going to be game over for any Israelite, doesn't matter who, because look at this iron and this bronze and this height and this weaponry. But then, friends, we remember something. We remember that just one chapter prior, when the prophet Samuel had been so sure that Eliab was the son of Jesse, that he was to anoint as king, God stopped Samuel in his tracks by saying to Samuel this, you're focused on the wrong things. That's a paraphrase. God said to Samuel, do not look on his what? Appearance or on what? On the height of his stature, because Eliab was like an all-star linebacker, right? And God says, don't look at his appearance or on the height of his stature. God said to Samuel, the Lord sees not as man sees. So maybe then, maybe despite the labored and quite leisurely description of Goliath and his intimidating presence, maybe we shouldn't be focused on that intimidating presence. Maybe as we read this description, God would have us be careful, listen, lest we focus on the wrong things. Maybe the terror of Goliath is only a mirage. And maybe, just maybe, as we read here of Goliath's 125-pound coat of mail and his 15-pound spearhead, not to, not to mention the other bronze that's on him, maybe we should conclude that with all that weight on him, it won't be possible for him to move very quickly or to be agile on the battlefield. Maybe all that weight on Goliath is actually not to his advantage, but to his disadvantage. Verse eight, this Navy, Army, and Air Force combined into one great battle instrument now shouts at Israel. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? I can't quite get my voice low enough, probably. <laughs> but that second question that Goliath asks can be rendered something like this. Goliath says, hey, am I not one of those godless Philistine types that you Israelites talk about? And are you not servants on the right side of things with your king Saul? Then what are you scared of? Come out and fight me. He says, choose a man for yourselves. Notice I've abandoned the voice. Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. Verses nine and 10. If your guy is able to fight with me and kill me, Goliath says, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we might fight 
together. And Saul, king of Israel, is preoccupied with, is focused on, staring at Goliath's intimidating appearance and his intimidating metallic form. Saul and his men with him can't take their eyes off the terror that is Goliath. And now when they hear Goliath's self-confident taunts toward them, they are paralyzed in fear. Verse 11, when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, what happened? They were dismayed and not just afraid. Greatly afraid. So get the picture here. There's the king of Israel, the tallest guy in the land, head and shoulders above everybody in Israel, cowering before Goliath. Immobile in his fear. The king of Israel is shaking in his boots. The bronze, the coat of mail, Goliath's voice, Goliath's height, the spearhead, all of this is too much for Saul. Now friends, notice please how God is nowhere in Saul's field of vision. Notice that very carefully. Saul is resolutely focused on the wrong things. How about you? Enter David. The first words of verse 12 are, now David was. So David enters at this juncture of the story. David, who a chapter ago had been anointed by Samuel to succeed Saul as the king of Israel. David. Now, what we're going to do here with the next several verses is we're just going to motor through them, uh, about 22 or 23 verses of the story. I want to just point out a few highlights in verses 12 through 33. So if you have a Bible open, some things to take note of here. Verse 16 tells us that this, this standoff, get this, this standoff between Goliath and Israel went on for a full 40 days. Every day Goliath comes out, nobody comes out to meet him. Saul and all the people are <gasps> shaking in their boots and tear. 40 days. And verses 17 and 18 tell us that young David is assigned the job of bringing lunch boxes to his brave brothers who are out there cowering with their king. David's got to bring them lunch. Significantly, in verse 20, we're told that David left the sheep that he'd been tending, and he went out to his brothers with the lunch kits. And in that moment, what's happening is David is leaving one flock of sheep to go help another flock, namely the flock called Israel that is facing the metallic giant. And when David arrives, he does what? He leaves the lunch kits with the baggage handler in verse 22. And David then runs, it says, he runs to where the Israelites, to where the flock is. Saul, for his part, remember if you've read the story, had once hidden amongst the baggage because he had been too scared to become king. 
David runs from the baggage to help his people like a proper king should. In verses 24 and 25, we have another report of how terrified everybody is, the men of Israel, uh, as they face Goliath. They're all focused on the wrong thing. And then it's like David comes along and he throws open the windows and he releases all that stale, godless, fearful air that had been building up. In verse 26, notice what happens. David injects God into the whole situation. David asks, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies, not of Israel, but of the living God? It's like David is saying here, To anybody who will listen, he's saying, I don't care about the bronze and the spear and the helmet and the height and the presence of this guy. He's just a guy. A guy who has no idea what he's doing as he defies the armies of the living God. In the words of Dale Ralph Davis, it's like David looks around here and asks a question that we should all ask in our lives. Doesn't having a living God make a difference in all of this? Doesn't having a living God make a difference in all of this? David seems to be the only one in the entire story so far who has the right focus. Do we? Do we? Well, David's older brother Eliab is not a fan of his little brother and his little brother's tone here. I come from a family of three siblings. I know what this is like. I love the way Walter Brueggemann puts this. He says, little brothers bother big brothers, especially if big brothers are pretending to be mighty men of valor but are immobilized in fear and cannot fight. (laughs) Eliab tries to save face here as he gives his little brother a dressing down in verse 28. Eliab looks at David. Eliab's focus is on the fact that David is nothing but his little sheep-tending brother. David is the one whose job it was to bring the lunchboxes. David should now get lost and leave the fighting to the real men. <laughs> so Eliab's focus seems off here too. There's a lot in this story. It's like a, an epidemic of sorts. And then down in verses 31 through 33, Saul. Saul hears about what David has been saying in the face of Goliath. And when David appears before Saul and David volunteers to go fight Goliath, Saul too is focused on the wrong things as he looks at David. Saul says to David in verse 33, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him for you are but a youth. And he has been a man of war from his youth. See friends, Saul is focused on the wrong things. 
Saul is guilty of what God had warned about one chapter ago. Saul is looking on David's appearance and the height of his stature. And because of that, Saul is focused on the wrong things. His sight in this situation is defective. And I wonder again, what about our sight and our focus in our situation? Are we focused on the right things? And then we come to verse 34 and following. David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and did what? And struck him and delivered it out of its mouth, out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him, imagine this, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. Why? For he has defied the armies of the living God. Here, David describes his shepherding work to Saul. David describes how he fearlessly handled lions and bears when they threatened his father's sheep, and now Goliath will be like one of them. Goliath will be like one of these threatening animals. You see, in David's field of vision, in David's focus, Goliath was really no more than one of those beasts who threatened the sheep. And David, David would handle him too. David would save the flock of Israel from this presumptuous giant. If Saul wouldn't, David would. If the first king of Israel wouldn't, then the second king of Israel would do as a king should and rescue his flock. But now, friends, we need to notice this. David by his own admission, would not do any of this in his own strength. Amen? Amen. The Lord would be the warrior here. Verse 37, and David said, the Lord who delivered me. Pause on that. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Ah, had it been David's physical strength or David's skills as a shepherd or David's own braveness as a shepherd that had delivered him as he fought off bears and lions? No, it had been the Lord who fought for David. David knows that. David sees that. His focus, friends, we need to understand and see. His focus is spot on. David sees what the other characters have failed to see. David looks at this situation from a theological perspective as we should. David recalls how God had delivered him in the past and in faith. In faith, David is sure that God is going to do it again. David is confident, not in his own wits, not in his own abilities, but in the Lord. In the Lord. Is your focus in the right 
place this morning. David is focused on God here instead of being focused on Goliath's fearsome armor. My friend, where is your focus today? In your own situation, doesn't matter what it is, are you focused on the right thing? Now there's some tragic humor in verse 37. Saul says to David, go, and the Lord be with you. Oh man, interesting, isn't it? Saul can trust that God will be with another person, but Saul doesn't believe it for himself, obviously. And then in what follows here, Saul displays to us really his worldview, which is exactly the same as Goliath's worldview. How does one have success in battle? Well, in Saul's thinking, one has success in battle by suiting up and making sure that all the necessary man-made armor and technology is in play. A person has to trust in his armor to win a battle. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head. Where have we heard that before? He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. Where have we heard that before? Picture David now, he looks a lot like a miniature Goliath. And David strapped his sword over his armor and he tried in vain to go for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these for I have not tested them. So David put them off. No matter. One chapter ago, we were told that the spirit of God had already rushed upon David. David might not be clothed in Saul's armor anymore for battle, but David is clothed with the spirit of almighty God. As David takes off the armor of Saul, what's he doing? He is separating himself from the worldview of both Saul and Goliath. The Lord will be David's shield. Verse 40. Then David took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistines. Now remember again, friends, the Philistines are the military tech people. They are the people who had been forging iron. They had been fashioning spearheads, crafting new innovative weapons. David just goes out and he picks up stones that God had made off of the ground. Verses 41 and 42, and the Philistine moved forward. Notice this movement, David moving, Philistine moving, came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. So at last we have this dramatic moment where the two combatants are now facing one another. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, now notice this very carefully, whose focus do we have here? We have Goliath's focus now. Goliath looking and seeing David. We have Goliath's sight now, his perspective on David. And we wonder, is Goliath going to see right? Is his focus going to be correct? What was his focus? Well, the text tells us that Goliath disdained David as he's looking at him. He's disdaining David. Why? Because David was but a youth in Goliath's eyes, ruddy and handsome 
in appearance. So we could put it like this. David looks on, or sorry, Goliath looks on David, and what does Goliath see? He sees nothing but an ill-equipped pretty boy. <laughs> when we were studying this in the story of David earlier, a few years ago, I said to the people, and it's all over the place, the, the way David is described and Absalom is described, these guys were hotties, right? Good-looking guys. He's an ill-equipped pretty boy in Goliath's eyes. Easy pickings. This would be over pretty quickly, and Goliath, he's not going to gain a whole lot of prestige from such an easy victory. Goliath disdained David. And he said to David, Am I a dog? that you come to me with sticks? Now remember, friends, just a few verses ago, David had talked about fighting off bears and lions. And now Goliath wonders if he's a dog. Well, dogs are a little easier to fight off than bears and lions. Am I a dog? Well, yes, Goliath, you are in fact a dog. And you're about to have that confirmed in the worst way. And then at the end of verse 43, we have a statement, I think, that absolutely, we could probably end it here, this statement absolutely confirms the outcome of the battle. The last sentence of the verse reads, And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. It's over. Goliath is going down. And how do we know this? Well, we know this for two reasons. First, the word cursed here is the same Hebrew word that's found in Genesis 12, 3, where God had promised that those who curse Abraham and Abraham's offspring would themselves receive God's curse. And cursing Abraham's offspring, David, Goliath has just opened himself up to receiving God's curse. And secondly, Goliath curses, notice he curses David by his gods. Goliath is a Philistine. One of Goliath's gods was that Philistine god Dagon, who we talked about a couple weeks back. Dagon was that god who had lost his head, remember? on the temple floor, courtesy of Yahweh. So there's a good possibility that Goliath is going to end up looking like the God he curses by, who loses his head. In verses 44 through 47, Goliath and David trade speeches with one another. The longest speech of the two, of course, comes from the mouth of David. And we need to see again, friends, David's speech is brimming with God. He says to Goliath, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. Of course you do, because that's your worldview in action, Goliath. You trust in your armor, in your man-made weapons, in your steel and in your bronze. But, says David, I come, how? I come to you in the name of Yahweh of armies the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. You see, you and I, Goliath, we see the world differently. 
armor and weapons is not the way I'm going to win this. God is the way that I'm going to win this. This day, he says, Yahweh will deliver you into my hand. Notice the confidence, the spirit wrought confidence in David. And I will strike you down and cut off your head so that now you're going to resemble your God that you're cursing me by. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Friends, can you see the evangelistic effect that David's victory is going to have throughout the whole earth? Heavy metal Goliath is going down at the hands of ill-equipped little David so that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. We're still preaching the story of David and Goliath. God will get international glory through this victory. God will be famous in all the earth. The focus will be put on God. David continues, he says that Goliath is going down so that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves how? Not with sword and spear, for the battle is whose? The Lord's. And he will give you into our hands. So David is trusting who for victory? He's trusting God for victory. David sees properly. David's focus is on the right thing. David is gonna fight on the ground. David will act very shrewdly to do what's necessary here, as David is, he's a shrewd fella. But in faith, David knows, in faith, friends, David knows full well that the Lord of armies is the real opponent that Goliath is facing. Verse 48, I love it. When the weighted down, tank-like, encumbered Philistine arose, barely get up with all that weight on him, and came and drew near to meet the unencumbered featherweight, David. David ran quickly, of course he did, because he's not weighed down. He ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. Goliath is the snail here. He's weighed down as he is with all that metal. David, wearing no armor at all, darts in, kind of like an eagle or a cheetah. Who's the real underdog in this moment? Yeah, you'd almost have to argue it was Goliath and not David. Goliath is weighted down. Goliath is totally outmatched by the speed and the agility of David. And more importantly, Goliath is outmatched by who? By Yahweh. Goliath is expecting hand-to-hand combat here. He's expecting the two gentlemen to meet together, but David sucker punches Goliath before the hands of the two men ever meet. Verse 49, and David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and struck the Philistine, struck the Philistine. Notice, did we, did we have that word before in the narrative? David had struck the bears and the lions, same Hebrew word struck those bears and lions in his father's field. Now David strikes the dog, the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. This thing is over before it's even begun. 
And just as Goliath's God had, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground, 1 Samuel 5.4, lost his head, so Goliath, servant of Dagon, fell on his face to the ground. And in verse 51, fallen Goliath loses his head just like his God. Genesis 3.15 had promised that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the seed of the serpent. David is the seed of the woman. He is God's chosen king in Israel and he's crushing the forehead now of the seed of the serpent. Goliath who, who causes, David causes Goliath to lose his head. Verse 50, so David prevailed over the Philistine. And how did David do it? Well, the narrator says David did it. How? With a sling and with a stone. He struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword. Notice how the narrator labors to point this out. There was no sword. Just in case you thought there wasn't, there was no sword in the hand of David. No sword. Why? Because David is endowed with the spirit of God. God is a warrior, my friends. David needed no conventional man-made weapons. Verse 51, then David ran, he's doing a lot of running here, stood over the Philistine and in keeping with the battlefield conventions of the day, David took Goliath's own sword and he drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. So much for Goliath's promise that the Philistines would stick around and become Israel's servants. If Israel won this battle, they don't stick around. They don't stick around after the battle. They just take off running. Verse 52, and the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and they ran after these guys. They pursued the Philistines as far as Goliath's hometown. Notice Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sha'araim as far as Gath and Ekron. Now, it's tempting for me to end this with a be like David application, having journeyed through the passage. Be like David and have faith in God and you too can slay your giants. But that's not where I'm going as we close this. The title of this whole sermon series is Fighting for His People. God fighting for his people. So what I wanna do very briefly, instead of saying be like David, is to say to you, we need a David. In the face of certain death, in the face of a fearsome enemy called sin that enslaves us. In the face of Satan himself. In the face of that sort of Goliath, you and I need a David. We need a greater than David to come along in our paralysis, like Saul, and in our fear in our helplessness before this great enemy, we need a warrior who is specially endowed with the spirit of God. We need a warrior who comes along exalting the name of the Lord 
a warrior who has divine weaponry to slay the giant of sin, death, and the devil. And my friends, we never fail to love speaking of Jesus. Jesus is that warrior. He must be our focus in this text and in every text of the Bible and as we end this sermon today and in our week. As the Spirit of God had rushed upon David, the Spirit of God descends on Jesus and rests upon him at his baptism. And as David had come to Goliath saying, I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, so Jesus comes to the earth in the name of his Father. And his whole mission centers around making known his Father's name, hallowing his Father's name. Father, hallowed be your name. Working in his Father's name, manifesting his Father's name, glorifying his Father's name, keeping his sheep in his Father's name. David had left the lunches and the baggage and he had run to tend to the flock of Israel, to rescue the sheep who he soon would reign over as king. Jesus is the good shepherd, the better shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. Jesus dies on the cross for his flock in our place. Amen? as our substitute to pay the penalty for our sin and not his own. And in the cross and in the resurrection, what we have is the greater David, our Lord Jesus Christ, winning for us, for us, the battle against the Goliath who faced us. Amen? What did Jesus do in the cross and the resurrection? He delivered the death blow to sin, death, and the devil. And like David before him, David who had used Goliath's own weapon, to cut off Goliath's head, Jesus takes Satan's own weapon and he uses that weapon against Satan. Hebrews 2 verses 14 and 15 tell us that the one who had held the power of death, the devil himself, was destroyed by his own weapon. The devil was destroyed by death, by the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. David had used a stone to slay Goliath. Well, on the third day, there was another stone, a stone that rolled away. And as that stone rolled, what was happening, it was effectively, God was sinking a stone directly into the forehead of sin, death, and the devil. They went down on their faces, their heads cut off. My friends who are in Christ, Jesus is our king, amen? He is our warrior, he is risen. And so I end with this question, have you, are you a person who has trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your savior? Do you know him as your rescuer? Do you know him as your deliverer? Do you have the right focus? Are you seeing clearly in this life? Are you seeing the might of Jesus and the worth of Jesus and the treasure that is Jesus and the glory of Jesus? He went to the battle and shed his blood for you in your place. 
so that you don't have to for your sin. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Will you do that this very day? Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, what a mighty God we serve. You are the God who is strength in our weakness. Lord God, you are our deliverer, our rescuer, our champion, our friend, our master. We praise you this morning. We adore you. And I pray for a soul here or two who has not yet come to know you. Lord, that your spirit would so work through your word this morning that there would be a birth, a new birth for your glory and for your sake. Go with us mightily this week. Whatever we face, Lord, whatever our situation, I pray that you would go before us, behind us, underneath us, around us, in every way. In Jesus' name, amen.